0: gratitude goes out to you today for listening to eco radio kc on 90.1 fm kkfi kansas city community radio this is a locally made exploration into positive solutions to some of today's ecological challenges for all of us working to create a healthier future for our communities and for the world you live in could have thought that in these modern times of digital monitoring of everything something as massive as a freight train could become a toxic fireball rolling undetected and unslowed into an ohio town but a norfolk southern train did just that derailing in east palestine and contaminating the air water land and families with tons of cancer-causing chemicals gosh exclaimed norfolk southern gosh exclaimed the ohio governor "'Gosh!' exclaimed the U.S. Transportation Chief. "'Gosh!' exclaimed the GOP Chair of the Rail Transportation Committee. "'This is a terrible, unexpected accident, and we're all appalled by it.'" Only, all of these officials knew full well that this disaster would happen, though they didn't know exactly where. Indeed, far from unexpected, there are more than a thousand preventable train derailments in the U.S. every year. Norfolk Southern had another one only days after the one in Ohio. And these things don't just happen. They're caused by the profiteering greed of the monopolistic industry's top executives and rich investors. While Norfolk's boardroom elites have been pocketing record profits in recent years, they've used armies of lobbyists and multi-million dollar political donations to kill safety protections that would prevent such a disastrous record. To cut costs and jack up profits, railroad bosses have rigged the rules to run trains that are Absurdly long, go too fast, carry undisclosed toxics in weak tanker cars, have no fire detectors, use outmoded braking systems, and have as few as one crew member on board. One. This is Jim Hightower saying Norfolk's derail train was made to derail. It pulled 149 cars stretching nearly two miles down the track, and it was ill-equipped to detect fires and other problems. This disaster was not an accident. It was mandated by the corporate and government officials now professing outrage. The Hightower Radio Lowdown is made possible by you subscribers to Jim Hightower's Lowdown on Substack. Find us at jimhightower.substack.com. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. My name
1: is Terry. Today, host Brent Ragsdale speaks with his guest, Stan Cox, Research Fellow for Ecosphere Studies with the Land Institute. The Land Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit research organization based in Salina, Kansas, that was founded in 1976. The Land Institute co-leads the global movement for perennial, diverse, truly regenerative agriculture. Stan Cox had been Head Breeder for the Land Institute's Perennial Sorghum Program when he transitioned to Research Fellow for Ecosphere Studies. Stan now dedicates his time to researching the global ecological emergency. Stan is an expert on ecological events and the energetics of human society and he has written extensively on those topics. The Land Institute's deep interest in how humanity realizes a perennial vision within the status quo of agriculture is an exercise in living sustainably. The Land Institute would like to teach us to plant once, tend perennially, and harvest the wealth of our crops to feed a hungry planet and not just its people. The goal is a thriving ecosphere, which we luckily have, but which we need to be careful not to destroy. Brent and Stan will talk about the Land Institute, Stan's career, and some of the books he's written. We at Eco Radio KC are glad to encourage awareness and the protection of our world. Our goal is to assure our listeners are aware of how we can create a sustainable present for a sustainable future. Jimmy Carter said, Acknowledging the physical realities of our planet does not mean a dismal future of endless sacrifice. In fact... We can meet the resource problems of the world water, food, minerals, farmlands, forests, overpopulation, pollution if we tackle them with courage and foresight. This will be a great radio hour. Now, our show.
2: Good evening, Kansas City. Welcome to Eco Radio KC. I'm Brent Ragsdale, and my guest is Stan Cox. Good evening, Stan.
3: Good to be with you, Brett.
2: Well, Terry did such a nice job with that intro. That was going to be the first fifteen minutes was going over all of that. So <laughs> right. we are going to have a lot of time. Yeah. No, so I, 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 I'd like to start with talking about the Land Institute. It, it seems to me that people in my circles, sort of the ecological aware people, from from far and wide, know the Land Institute but a lot of my local friends and college buddies, you know, in in agriculture have not really heard about the Land Institute, which really just always shocks me. So why don't you give us a little uh, explanation of what the the Land Institute is and does and and all of that?
3: Hmm. Um, Right. Um, The Land Institute um, was uh, founded in 1976 by Wes Jackson, um, who uh, was an um, environmentalist and, and um, uh, professor of uh, genetics uh, at that time. And um, the, the idea was to, um, well, well, within a couple of years, the idea became, came to be to achieve sustainability in agriculture First, because um, it, as Wes said, if we don't um, make our our processes of producing food and fiber and so forth sustainable, we're not going to achieve sustainability in, in the rest of society. Um, and so, they um, back at that time they took the uh, native prairie because the um, the place was founded on the um, banks of the Smoky Hill River in Saline County, uh, where th- there was still a good bit of prairie around, but they said, you know, the you know, breadbasket of the country, the middle of the country, was plowed up um, in the uh, throughout the last half of the 19th century, and the perennial, diverse ecosystems with very deep roots, living roots all year round, were. Uh, stripped away, and um, and then wheat and uh, later corn and, and soybeans were planted instead, and those are annual crops that don't have living roots all year, um, and so if we're going to uh, em- emulate the ecological processes of the prairie, which doesn't suffer soil erosion or um, water contamination or any of the problems we have, then we we need to have perennial plants that produce grain for us to eat. And so that um, turned out to be the kind of long-term uh, mission at Land Institute. I um, came here in 2000 um, and uh, we were working on several um wheat, uh, milo, sunflowers, and others, and we had ecologists um, studying how to put these different perennial species together. Um, and then, um, as Terry said, I, um, uh, three years ago now, um, moved out of uh, plant breeding, which, which I was doing then, into um, ecosphere studies.
2: Yeah, and I want to hear about more about that. Um, I am, have, have been able to listen to Wes Jackson speak live a couple of times, once in Kansas City and, and once at the Prairie Festival. I've attended one time. That's that's the Land Institute's big annual gathering every fall, which right. Wes, who, who really has a way of a, turning a phrase, calls an intellectual hootenanny, I think is yeah. his phrase for the for the prairie festival but i'm a big admirer of of wes and his way of thinking he's really influenced me a lot and i i would assume that's probably what took you to the land institute in the beginning stan talk a little bit about where where you grew up and your your educational background and, and what you did before you went to the land institute
3: i i grew up in georgia um Got my bachelor's degree in agronomy at the University of Georgia. Went to Iowa State uh, for my graduate work. And after getting my Ph.D., I took a job in, with the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Wheat Genetics in Manhattan on, on the K-State campus. Um, and then I, I was there until the late 90s. Uh, but during that time, from the mid '80s to the uh, mid '90s, I um, had a lot of I, I had a lot of interaction with Wes and and the Land Institute, and it uh, was on a kind of a board of advisors they had, and so forth. And Wes and I worked on some big proposals to try to get the USDA to take up uh, perennial. Uh, Polycultures, uh, which went, went nowhere, but we we, we uh, you know we you know, spent a, a good bit of time working on that, and so I got to know him uh, uh, quite well, and so I eventually decided to uh, come uh, come and work with the Land Institute.
2: And I I know that the Land Institute, um, their goal is to create agriculture systems that mimic natural systems. I think that the term is natural systems agriculture. Right. Is that something that that the Land Institute really founded and started, or is there a bigger movement beyond what the Land Institute does?
3: <laughs> um, yeah. Yes, there's definitely a bigger movement. Interestingly, the that, that, um, natural systems agriculture, it was the uh, people in ag research at at Kansas State, who came up with that term during these all these talks we were having with them on trying to um, uh, get them to take up this kind of work, they came up with a great name for it, but they you know, they uh, it, it ended up not working out for them to work on this. But uh, but then around it, things seem to change a lot, in the world around twenty two thousand nine, twenty ten when perennial uh, grain crops, which had been kind of rejected by the egg research establishment, suddenly became um, the, uh, the object of a lot of attention. And we really, um, we suddenly uh, perennial grains became respectable and now we have, I, I don't have the exact numbers, but we have cooperators and, uh, in, in I don't know uh, dozens of countries and dozens of um, universities and other research institutions around the United States um, working on uh, on uh, all kinds of uh, research that's related to developing this uh, natural systems agriculture.
2: Yeah, and it's it's not just wheat. Y- you specialized in sorghum. I understand that was what you you bred at the land. Uh, right. Yes. Yes, it's
3: um, a, a whole range of different crops, and there are people doing it uh, all the way from uh, from Australia to uh, Uganda to um, uh, um,
2: Uruguay. <laughs> wow! So, so part of the appeal of a perennial crop is not having to plow every year. Is that? correct? So you don't lose that topsoil or degrade the topsoil? You're, actually, you're building topsoil?
3: Yeah, yeah. So and, and not only the topsoil, but the entire soil ecosystem down through the profile. Because we're not clear-cutting the roots out of there every year, it um, is able to maintain that kind of um, living ecosystem year-round with huge amount of diversity and in, in soil health.
2: Yeah, I've seen the the chart of the long roots at several places. They have that in the stairway yeah. over in Lawrence at the Free State Brewery. It's yeah, really right. impressive to see how deep those roots go. <laughs> Speaking of breweries, I'll have to plug one of my favorite beers that's made from your Kearns of Wheat.
3: Oh, yeah. From
2: the Blue Sky Brewery in Salina, the Crankcase <laughs> IPA. I would yeah tell people that's a, a very quality product.
3: Yeah, it sure is.
2: <laughs> so <laughs> uh, you also have have projects in rice. I know rice is a big crop in Asia. It, it, is it an annual crop also, usually as well?
3: Yeah, yes. Rice around the world is an uh, annual crop. Um, back in 2007-8, we began um, giving some very small funding, like $10,000 a year, to uh, uh, some colleagues in southwest China to who were working on the genetics of perennial rice, and we uh, gave them some funds to hire people to do some actual breeding to develop perennial uh, rice varieties, and It was enough to kind of get them started, and based on that, they leveraged it into getting a bunch of money from the national government, and now, 15 years later, they have uh, several varieties, commercial varieties of perennial rice growing on thousands, many thousands of acres in many provinces of China in kind of a pilot production and yielding in, in some cases two crops a year for three or, three or four years.
2: Well, I know we have the saying that everything's big in Texas, but I think that China is the real deal when it comes to that yeah. Mar- marshaling resources and getting things done. Hey, Stan, right. we're, gonna, we're gonna take our first break here in a little bit, but okay. we are talking with Stan Cox from the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas via Zoom, and we will be back in a moment. Support for KKFI by City Year Kansas City. As an education equity nonprofit, City Year works inside Kansas City Public Schools, supporting students emotionally and academically so that they can thrive inside and outside of the classroom. To learn more about City Year's service and open positions, visit cityyear.org.
0: Less explore, less question. Let's Decolonize Together on Ebony's Bones.
4: Tune in every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. on 90.1 FM
5: KKFI Kansas City Community Radio. I'm Dr. Anthony Lisewitz, and this is Climate Connections. Public parks are valuable community assets. They provide a place for people to exercise and meet their neighbors, and they offer environmental benefits such as cooling shade. But Taj Shotland of the Trust for Public Land says not everyone has equal access to a park. A hundred million people do not have a park within a 10-minute walk of home. And data shows that parks in communities of color are about half the size of those in predominantly white areas, even though they serve more people on average. So the Trust for Public Land created a website with maps of roughly 14,000 cities and towns. Called ParkServe, it shows the location of existing parks, along with demographic data and information about which areas suffer most from extreme heat. And it pinpoints where new parks could be created to address inequities and urban heat. Cities can use the tool for planning, and residents can use it for advocacy. You can go in to your parks and rec department or to your mayor, or to city governance, and be able to show, these are the hot spots in my community, these are the neighborhoods that lack adequate park space, and here are a couple locations where a new park is needed to provide all of these multiple benefits. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. Welcome back
2: to Eco Radio KC. I'm Brent Ragsdale, we're speaking with with Stan Cox, the uh, Research Fellow in Ecosphere Studies with the Land Institute. And we're talking about the breeding of perennial grains, which has happened over a number of years at the Land Institute and other places worldwide. So Stan, just to be clear, this is traditional breeding of these things. There's no genetic um, modification really going on other than what you do by selectively yeah. breeding. Is that correct? Mm-hmm.
3: Right. Yeah. The the techniques of um, manipulating the plants are the same as they um, have always been for uh, by professional plant breeders for the past century and a half and by um, farmers and Uh, Amateur breeders for um, 10,000 years, just pollinating one plant with another and selecting. Um, So um, we're, um, but yeah, we do have for evaluating plants, you use a lot more um, technology and for um, using genetic maps to determine which plants to select and so forth. But those are simply for observation and, and they're not. Manipulating the DNA of the of plants themselves.
2: Yeah. So, whereas ten thousand years ago, um, someone that was wanting to grow grains more consistently, they might observe that this particular plant had a bigger head or, or yeah. thrived a little more, and so they would they would plant that one. Whereas y- you have myriad ways of, of looking at the health and the benefits and the, all of the things about the different plants. So you, you're sort of speeding yeah. up that breeding process.
3: But still, the core, in, in my philosophy, the core information that you have to have, you get by observing, weighing, measuring, etc. cetera. It, it, these um, newer techniques are indirect ways of um, determining these things and they're not uh, 100% right. So having
2: both ways is is the best. Ah, I see. So my wife grows perennial native plants Ah. and annual native plants. So she would really be way more qualified to be having this discussion. (laughs) Most of what I know on this subject I learned from Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel book, which yeah. I thought was fascinating that there were so few plants that really were candidates for making grains out of. That was one of my takeaways from that book. What What is sorghum and, um, and what do we do with it? Um, sorghum
3: is a, a grain and forage and sugar crop that was domesticated maybe eight thousand years ago in East Africa, and um, was, um, and, and then it kind of spread out out through Asia mainly as a, a grain crop. It's in the branch of the grass family with uh, corn, and so it's the plants have a corn-like um, look about them, and the the grain is smaller than the grains of corn, but kind of fairly similar. Um, it has been used uh, since, uh, well, for, uh, I don't know, hundred and uh, what, 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 like for uh, 80 years or so in United States, mainly as a grain crop for livestock feed and more recently for fuel ethanol production, but in most of the world, um, especially Africa and South Asia, it is uh, uh, one of the staple um, human food crops. It's the fifth uh, fifth
2: most important uh,
3: cereal crop in, in the world. Oh, my.
2: Well, um, so, Terry mentioned that you, you, uh, Got a new job title at the Land Institute a few years ago, and that that's been fairly recently. Was that? Did you say it was 2020?
3: Yes, uh, just like one week before the first the COVID shutdowns COVID. started, it, I, it, I it. Moved, moved over to uh, Ecosphere Studies.
2: So that's an interesting title. What, what is an Ecosphere?
3: This yeah, this kind of um, department, I guess you'd say, of the Land Institute was uh, created um, when Wes Jackson um, stepped down from his role as president of the Land Institute after 40-something years. Um, but he, um, the the original land of the land Institute, land Institute was land that he still owned and, or that he owned and, and still owns. And so, um, and and he wanted to remain uh, in, involved, and so we um, created this uh, Ecosphere Studies um, program with uh, Aubrey Strike Krug as the, the director of it, but uh, Wes was there in it too. Um, and uh, in Wes's view, it in in my view, it was established to keep alive the original vision of the Land Institute from the 1970s and 80s, which was not not to only work on uh, perennial agriculture, but also to take the much larger um, ecological view of the world that we're not going to um, you know, resolve the the global ecological emergency by tackling one problem at a time, but by um, not destroying ecosystems, by keeping not keeping ourselves from uh, encroaching on ecosystems and by shrinking the human economy to fit inside, nature's economy rather than what we're doing the other way around which is um, uh, economic growth being enough to consume the resources of I think for planet earth at this point that you
2: yeah. know that we have you can't to. can't have you can't have infinite growth on a finite yeah, planet yeah right and, and by nature of, of the the term sphere you know that that kind yeah. of implies this beautiful ball that we live on. So I, what all is in yeah. the ecosphere? Is it the, the soil and the air and, and all the all the living things?
3: Is that, yes. is that what you yeah. like? Yes, this was um, Wes's big reason. He didn't invent the term ecosphere. Um, that, that was uh, by some, they were colleagues of his. But um, he objected strenuously to use of the term biosphere to um, encompass everything because he said the, the the components of the soil, the geology that produces soil, and as you said, the, the water and, and the atmosphere are all part of an ecosphere is in all of the non-living and, and living things that are in what he calls uh, a slab of space-time at any, at any one place in time that uh, the living and non-living can't do without each other, and they're self-reinforcing.
2: Oh, that's interesting. Ooh. Yeah, Wes, in addition to his background in biology and botany and genetics, he's, he's also an anthropologist and
3: <laughs> a uh,
2: philosopher. Uh, philosopher. And, uh, and, yes. and a big thinker yes yeah so i i've heard so so your your boss is aubrey is that what you said uh, right right yeah Yes. Yeah. and and i heard a discussion um online doing doing my research you know and i like to listen to podcasts so that's not too difficult for me to, to listen to a good interview yeah. and there was some talk about equity in that you know that mm. it's that's a big thing as well. Is we only have a, a limit, limited resources, and how can we share them in an in a just and an equal way? Is that yep. is that something that you deal with as well? Um,
3: yes, that's been a, a big uh, part of what I do for the, the past ten years now. Since I um, wrote a book about. Um, rationing and um, and then more recently um, with uh, uh, some of my uh, climate one of my climate um, colleagues uh, we've written about uh, plans for um, directly reducing the quantities of fossil fuels that we um, uh, that are consumed uh, and which is going to be absolutely necessary uh, at this point to um uh, to turn around the um uh, the uh, greenhouse warming crisis um in, in other words to say in a country like the united states to put a a firm cap on the number of barrels of oil cubic feet of gas and tons of coal that are Allowed out of the ground and into the economy each year, and to ratchet that down very quickly, um, according to what the IPCC is says is needed, and and then that's where equity comes in because um, that obviously can create could create chaos in society to have the amount of available fuel going down, and that's where allocation of resources to um, basic needs and not toward wasteful, superfluous production and uh, rationing of energy resources on a, um, on a fair share's basis uh, would become uh,
2: very important. And really, that interests me tremendously. And it's really why I called you for this interview. But we've got a couple of minutes before our break. And I, my plan is to get into that Um, book of yours on Mm -hmm. on rationing after the break but so so i saw that you've got five at least five books that you've written in the last 10 or 15 years Mm -hmm. as you were doing your job there at the land institute and they were pretty varied you know they're they're not just uh the breeding of of sorghum by any means You, you wrote a book about air conditioning called losing our cool you wrote a book about a sick planet you wrote this book we want to talk about on on rationing called any way you slice it in 2013 um and then your most recent one is called the green new deal and beyond so and i then, think i think we'll there's
3: get one, into yeah.
2: Well, okay. and there's one after, yeah 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 that was in 2020
3: and then 2021 was uh, the path to a livable future and and, okay. and so i i specialize in writing books on subjects i don't have Credentials to be writing about, <laughs> um, and and then the other one in 2016, uh, my son Paul and I wrote a book called "How the World Breaks: uh, Life in Catastrophe's Path" from the Caribbean to the to Siberia, where we wrote about uh, a dozen uh, major uh, the aftermath of major disasters that had happened around the world and in, in, in over the past couple of decades.
2: Man, I, I've got to check some of those out. Okay, we're gonna take our, our last break and then we will be back with Stan to finish off this conversation. Thanks.
5: Hi, this is Mark Manning. For local and new releases in a mix of all genre, for interviews with artists, musicians, and writers, for freeform radio that plays with themes, questions, and events, tune in to Wednesday Midday Medley, Wednesdays from ten to noon, right here on ninety point one FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio.
0: If you or someone you know
6: is suffering from thoughts of suicide, you can dial the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at nine eight eight or go to 988lifeline.org This is a public service announcement of 90.1 FM KKFI
4: Here's a calendar for the week of 22723 Registration has begun for Pedalmo to support the Missouri Stream Team Watershed Coalition go to pedalmo.org Tuesday, February 28th, 9.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Orchard Keepers Training, hosted by Bridging the Gap, is ideal for anyone looking to plant their own orchard or fruit trees. The indoor sessions will be held from 9.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. at the Kansas City Library Plaza Branch, 4801 Main Street, Kansas City, Missouri. The outdoor pruning work sessions will be held from 1.30 to 4.30 p.m. at the Anita B. Gorman Conservation Discovery Center, 4750 Troost Avenue, Kansas City, Missouri. All tools will be provided. There is a cost for training. To learn more and to register, visit bridgingthegap.org. Tuesday, February 28th, 6 p.m., Virtual Climate Cafe Gathering is hosted by The Resilient Activist. The topic for February is our simple and kind acts for earth to learn more and register, visit the Thursday, March 2nd, noon, removing the invasive calorie pair and why you should workshop is hosted by deep roots, lunch and learn series. You can learn how to recognize it, remove it, and take advantage of the programs that encourage invasive species control and removal. Go to deeproots.org. Friday, March 3rd, noon, Fruit Tree and Small Fruit Pruning Workshops. This free workshop will be held outside in the garden, weather permitting, to provide a hands-on training for pruning fruit trees and fruit bushes. The event will be held at Kansas City Community Gardens, 6917 Kensington Avenue, Kansas City, Missouri. It is limited to 20 participants. To register, visit kccg.org. Saturday, March 4th, 3.30 to 5 p.m. Environmental Action Civics Workshop with Beth Sarver, Visions Keeper at KC Restoration School. The event will introduce participants to a process for partnering with youth to create a meaningful change in their community. No charge for the event at Johnson County Library, 9875 West 87th Street, Overland Park, Kansas. Stay involved. Check your local news for environmental issues. My name is Phil Bauer. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC.
2: Welcome back to Eco Radio. So um, we're speaking with Dan Cox from the Land Institute. And Dan, I'm I'm really interested in your book on rationing that you wrote in 2013. So it's been 10 years. Um, This is sort of a a recent kind of re-interest of mine. You know, um, something that kind of got me aware of limits and environmental things was the the idea that we were going to run out of fossil fuels, which was which was quite a thing, you know, under the umbrella yeah. of peak oil, maybe ten years ago. Yeah. Then we kind of discovered how to do fracking, and uh, or, or maybe how to keep the party going by doing fracking based on debt, you know, yeah. right. one way or the other. We have not seen those limits um, that that. We know, you know, intellectually, uh, as we said, you can't have unlimited, you know, growth on a finite planet, and there's, there's sure as the world, a limited amount of petroleum in the ground. Um, I came across your book um, in a review by a blogger named Alice Friedemann. She she wrote a very nice book review, and her comment was that if there's a better book on rationing, she doesn't know what it is. So uh, t- let's talk a bit about, about the, the coming um, need for rationing. I, I know your book talked a lot about the past, kind of h- how rationing has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's my opinion that petroleum is such a key thing for the economy and everything you know, um, arrives by truck. And I think that we're getting to the point where we have less net energy because it takes so much more energy now to find and uh, produce the oil. So that's why I think it's going to be coming um, more of an issue shortly. W- would you agree with that? Um,
3: um, yes, that will be true. But the, the more important reason to um, directly reduce the quantities not not only of oil but of uh, gas and coal is that according to the uh, UN Environment Program and, and IPCC, um, we're we need to be reducing um, uh, greenhouse gas emissions at Five, more than 5% per year at this point, which now, um, like last year, we actually increased 1.5%. And so this requires a very tight uh, clamping down on the, the quantities of, of fuel being used. And um, if we do that, then it is going to require, um, it's going to uh, cause shortages, and it, it will cause uh, chaos like the, like we saw in the 1970s if we just let the market take care of it, and, and so that's where um, there, there have been a number of good systems for um, rationing um, uh, fuel, electricity, uh, uh, forms of energy, um, and uh, other resources, if necessary, to it, you know, rationing is mistakenly seen a lot of times as a way of reducing consumption, but that's, that's not the purpose. You you reduce consumption by other means and then rationing is a way of making it fair for everybody and, and making sure not only that people don't overconsume, but that everybody uh, has a, a sufficient amount to, um, you know, Meet their basic needs.
2: Yeah, so that's a good distinction that, that people need to understand. And um, you talked about other protocols. I remember Richard Heinberg had a book. It, it's right. been, you know, m- m- maybe ten years also that was called yeah. the Oil Depletion Protocol. Yeah, is that similar to what you were putting forward in your later books? Um.
3: Uh yeah, he he mentioned rationing in 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 that book. Um but um in in my book on rationing was very generalized on on food, water, fuel, med, uh, medical care, et, et cetera. but then what my uh, colleague and I've been working on more recently called CAP and Adapt is um aimed strictly at um at fossil fuels, and Richard has recently uh, resumed writing about rationing. Also, and and there's been uh, just in the past year or so a kind of a blossoming of uh, discussion about rationing. I've been uh, um, exchanging emails today with various uh, people and groups who are um, wanting to have. Uh, Uh, seminars and meetings about um, rationing. And so when my book uh, came out, I got the the writer Raj Patel, encouraged him to write a blurb for it. And so in 2013, he said, today rationing is about as acceptable a topic of conversation as hemorrhoids. (laughs) But that doesn't mean it isn't happening. But now today it's a, it is Subject of polite conversation, and uh, and uh, there, and it's it's nice to see that finally there there's a lot of rising uh, interest in it.
2: So tell us about Cap and Adapt. That's an interesting concept, <laughs> or at least title. Yeah,
3: yeah that's the um, What I was um, referring to in an earlier segment there, of this. Um, a national cap that would be, um, you know, passed by Congress and say, we're only going to consume this much of each of the fossil fuels. And this cap is going to go down by I don't, say uh, 5% every year. So everybody buckle up because you know, that's a quite a rapid decrease because we have to get to zero emissions. We can, uh, be, you know, have a rapid, we we can allocate a lot of those fossil fuels to helping build up renewable uh, energy infrastructure, but that can't, it's not going to be possible to build up renewable electricity quickly enough to compensate for the fossil fuels that we're not going to be burning. And so we're, we're going to have to Uh, have, as we did in World War II, have uh, national planning, industrial planning to steer resources away from uh, manufacturing and transporting stuff that we don't really need and direct it toward essential needs. And for your um, uh, home consumption of uh, electricity and gas or for your fuel for your vehicles. Um, you'll have a, a ration smart card, and, and you'll have a, a certain amount uh, each month uh, for that.
2: I think that's going to take a lot of political leadership, and um, I'm afraid right now the political environment—one one faction would blame the other faction for that, <clears> throat> and throat> I thought. I'm really just hoping that we can get the conversation started here so that people can start getting their heads around how much less there is left for humanity to share, and yep. w- which is really the reason why we need to have this discussion and, and get these plans in place. Yep. So I, I know that you and I are both fans of former President Jimmy Carter. The, re- the recent news is that he's started into hospice care, and and yeah, I I would like to wish him and and Rosalind and, and their kids and family extended family just the best. I, I'm yeah. I'm so uh, so appreciative of his leadership and his sensibilities around um, living a lifestyle where enough is enough. You know, not, yes, not. not driven by constant growth. And
3: the only president who has recognized the reality of limits, and he he was uh, very eloquent uh, about that. Um, and he, uh, after the um, Iranian Revolution in 79, he started pushing Congress to pass a standby gas rationing system and he um, actually succeeded by the summer of uh, 1980 when he would soon be out of office. Congress finally did did pass this and it uh, it would have triggered gas rationing if we, uh, if um, there were, if, if we got down to a 20% um, shortfall in, in uh, national gasoline supply, right, and it would hold hold consumption at that level, and it, um, if that had been adopted, the calculation is that actually it was my cal- <laughs> my calculation that it would have saved, um, or was it, uh, uh, I forgot, how, how many uh, billion gallons of gasoline over, over the uh, next few decades, but it would have been basically about six years worth of um, uh, gasoline consumption if that had happened. But, um, you know, he went out of office, the, the law was still on the books but the uh, big uh, the Reagan recession began and um, fuel consumption declined and but they and they already had 4.8 billion um, ration coupons that had been printed up during the Nixon administration even Mm -hmm. Nixon had realized that we might need rationing Uh, and so they hauled them out of a, a Tavern in Colorado somewhere where they have been stored and, and burned them.
2: <laughs> and so, you yeah, uh, know, like we're, we're going to never need these again.
3: Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, back then that was before Alaska came online and yeah. producing oil and, and, and the, the UK had their big bonanza in the North sea, Yeah. You know. but now we we are down to the dredges. So I think we, we yeah. need to start talking about, you know, the prudent way to share these resources equitably. Yeah. I want to also call out uh, the recent book by Wes Jackson and, and Robert Jensen. You know, now that that Wes is, is retired, he's he's written this other book with Robert Jensen, you know, uh, yeah. called, called An Inconvenient Apocalypse, kind of a play on an in, inconvenient truth. Yeah. And one of the things that that, book talks about, you know, in terms of population size and consumption rates of, you know, how much we we have to share, but you know, also just the scope of 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 what modern society can be like, but also the speed with that we are required to transition. And I think that's what you're getting at now that because of these hard limits in the biosphere, with climate change and other reasons, there, there's a real need to to do yep. this emergency. <laughs> yeah, I
3: urge everyone to read Wes and Bob's book, and it's it, 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 it's not a long book; you can read it quickly, but it it uh, it packs a punch. And they're saying things are going to change very dramatically very soon. Um, and we need to be thinking about how we're going to live uh, on the other side when we—it's uh, not voluntary; it's involuntary restraint in, in having resources and, and so forth. And um, so, I—I I think everyone should read it. And as you said, West is a, a philosopher, and and so there's a lot of great philosophy in there.
2: Yeah. So the Land Institute is a is a five oh one C three organization, not for profit organization. Your website is is landinstitute.org. Is 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 there a particular place where people could get more of your information, Stan, or, or in touch with you? Um.
3: Uh, Just write to the um, Central um, uh, Land Institute um, information, the the central email address, and they'll put you in touch with me.
2: All right. Well, um, this has been an interesting conversation for me. I hope that our listeners found it so. If anyone is listening to this and and wants to hear it from its entirety, or again, all of our shows are available on kkfi.org. You can simply do a search online for Eco Radio KC and listen to all of our past shows. So, Stan Cox, thank you very much for being on Eco Radio KC. It was a pleasure to meet you virtually. And yep. when I get out to the Land Institute next time, I will come and shake your hand. All right.
3: Come on out.
2: All right. Thanks a lot.
3: Yeah. yeah. Thank
2: you. All right. Good evening, everyone.
4: The Moonlight Mosaic, shiny musical goodness, Friday nights at 9 o'clock. Sunshine pop, rock, psychedelia, imports, b-sides, drifting and dreaming from all eras and all time zones. Come hear your new favorite band on The Moonlight Mosaic every Friday night from 9 to 11, only on 90.1 FM. KKFI
5: Kansas City Community Radio KKFI would like to send a heartfelt thank you to everyone who participated in this year's Winter Fun Drive. To our donors, volunteers, programmers pitch partners, staff and food donors, we couldn't do it without you thank you so much We haven't quite hit our overall goal yet, and there's still time to pledge your support. So go online to kkfi.org and donate now. It's the perfect time to support your community radio station as we approach our 35th anniversary of being on the air, coming up on Tuesday, February 28th. So please take time today and go to kkfi.org to donate. And thanks again for 35 years of community support. This is Professor Howard Zinn. The
0: independent, non-commercial radio station you're listening to is really important in the maintenance of democracy. Thomas Jefferson once said, an informed democracy will behave in a reasonable manner. So if you care about being informed, if you care about democracy, if you're a reasonable person, you are, of course. Please support your source for uncensored news and views and the voice of your community.
6: My name is Darnell. At the end of our hour, here's some environmental news for the week of February 27, 2023. Democracy Now! reports. Nearly a million customers in the Midwest were left without power and met freezing temperature as a historic winter storm brought extreme weather to most of the nation. In California, there was a rare blizzard. Meanwhile, many southern states experienced record heat. In New York, the owner of the decommissioned Indian Point nuclear facility said it plans to dump a million gallons of radioactive water into the Hudson River as soon as August. The water contains tritium, a byproduct of nuclear fission that cannot be filtered out of water and which could lead to negative environmental and health effects. Inside Climate News reports, community solar is poised to become much more common thanks to a new $7 billion fund tied to the Inflation Reduction Act. Community solar is meant to be an option for people who cannot put solar on their own roofs, whether they don't own a home or have the financial ability to put solar up there have a lot of shady trees. Customers get a monthly bill credit from a utility company that has a solar installation. And the savings is one of the main selling points for subscribing. The model is designed to encourage development of solar power while also providing savings. Building new interstate power lines in the United States is like herding cats. The challenge is that countless stakeholders need to compromise about where a line will run and who will pay for it, and the parties at the negotiating table have competing interests, adding to the complications of a process that already was a slog. The stakes are high because the country needs to build many more of the lines to be able to accommodate growth in renewable energy and be able to run a grid that will rely more on transporting power over long distances. The isolated Thule Air Base in Greenland is the only U.S. outpost that can monitor all of Russia's missiles, but thawing permafrost is undermining the station. EcoWatch Reports as the world transition to electric vehicles, what should happen to all of the gas guzzlers that will remain on the roads? Even if the U.S. achieves President Joe Biden's goal of 50% new EV car sales by 2030, many people will still be driving their old fossil fuel power rides. One potential solution to this problem is to convert conventional vehicles into EVs. Another solution, the making travel, more efficient. Instead of converting private fossil fuel cars to EVs or running them on alternative fuels, we can move away from a one-person, one-car transportation model altogether. One of the most The important things urban leaders could do to tackle the climate crisis is to prioritize pedestrians and cycles in design over private motor vehicles. A global shift away from cars to more active forms of travel is exactly what the world needs right now. Replacing a trip by car with active travel is a highly effective way to cut emissions quickly. On February 14th, a commercial truck tractor hauling a trailer hit the highway median and rolled onto I-10 in Arizona outside of Tucson. The deadly collision led to a spill of hazardous material, which leaked from the commercial truck tractor. When we consider how to cut down on waste and lower our personal environmental impact, evaluating our grocery shopping habit plays an important role. Lawrence Journal World reports, University of Kansas suspends a major part of its recycling program because materials are contaminated with food waste. KU Student Body President Sadie Williams asks that the recycling program be brought back to what it once was and then make it better. WIBW Radio reports, residents of McLouth, Kansas, are voicing their displeasure with a company that wants to create a data processing center. The proposed location just north of McLouth, which is near Topeka, Kansas, sits on top of a natural gas field, which will be used to generate power for the center. Residents say the data processing center's generators that drive computers, computers used to create cryptocurrency will run 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and are so large that the noise they generate will sound like jet engines and will be heard over an area 6 miles from the center. Sustainability Action Network Newsletter reports. Polyvinyl chloride, PVC, is in packaging, home furnishing, children's toys, automobile parts, building materials, hospital supplies, water pipes, and hundreds of other products. Vinyl chloride is used primarily to make PVC. Vinyl chloride exposure is associated with an increased risk of liver cancer, brain and lung cancer, lymphoma, and. And leukemia PVC can smolder, unnoticed, and release extremely dangerous gases that present health hazards to building occupants, firefighters, and surrounding community. There are two products of PVC combustion that are of particular concern. Hydrogen chloride, a highly toxic gas that can burn skin and cause permanent respiratory damage, and dioxin, the most dangerous known man-made carcinogen. PVC is the largest contributor to the world's dioxin. And burden. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. Please tune in again next week or listen to our podcasts at any time.
0: They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. Thank you for listening to ECO Radio KC on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio. ECO Radio is brought
3: to you each week by a team of collaborators, including me, Craig Lugo, Terry Wilking, Brent Rysdale, Bob Grove, and Dave Mitchell.
1: The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and guests and not of KKFI and or the Midcoast Media Project. You can find our calendar and a podcast of each show on Eco Radio KC's Facebook page, as well as on our show page at kkfi.org. This is Richard Magan, and you can send inquiries and comments to our email
0: at kkfi.org forward slash contact
3: or message us on our Facebook page.
1: Up next is Fiesta Musical, followed by Noche Magica. Our outro music is Big Yellow Taxi by Jody Mitchell. Don't it always
0: seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone?